Our text for this morning can be found on page 992 of your pew Bible. This is a reading of Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who we believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it is so good to be back at uh, Beeson and be back with this community of faith. It is always a joy uh, to gather and worship here in many years sitting where you are today and, and hearing the word preached and being nurtured and cultivated in my own faith. I'm so grateful uh, for Dean Sweeney and the invitation uh, here today. If you have your copies of God's word, I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4 passage that was read earlier for us, and as you're turning there, just a reminder, I'm sure most of you know uh, the overall purpose of this letter, and it is to give a picture or a portrait of true gospel community, of the church that is grounded upon the good news of Jesus, what God has done for sinners in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and also that is that is you see actually evidenced in lives that are transformed by God and through his word. And he's writing this because there are these false teachers that had arisen within this church in Ephesus. And Paul is writing this to give apostolic authority to, uh, I don't know, help Timothy along in trying to combat these false teachers. But what I want to do uh, today is really unpack these two overarching marks or characteristics of a faithful, good servant of Christ, a pastor, a minister, but more broadly speaking, a good servant of Christ Jesus. And that has to do with not only doctrine, but also piety or godliness, as it's mentioned here in our passage. And even though Paul is writing specifically here to Timothy, and all the yous in here are in that second person singular, so they're not the y'all. Sometimes I like to have a translation in the southern 
uh, language of y'all, but it's not that. It's the use singular here. But even though he's writing to Timothy, the application is broader. It is for the church. In fact, in verse 11, he says in verse 11 to command and teach these things to the church. It's for the church. So not only do those professional Christians, not only do pastors and church leaders, should they learn and know doctrine and pursue piety, but this is for all of us. A few weeks ago, I was down in Birmingham and I was over at Briarwood Presbyterian Church and speaking at a revitalization conference over there, and I was missing my friend Harry Reeder. And I remember Harry Reeder, he was a longtime pastor at Briarwood here in Birmingham, and a couple years ago, he was up at my church, and we were doing a Q&A panel for a conference, and, and I was sitting right next to him, and he said something that stuck with me. He said that at any given moment, there's at least three good reasons why I should leave the ministry. And, of course, being a pastor of that size church, I'm sure there was more than three. But he said it was because of the sense of calling and purpose that God had given him that he would continue in this ministry. Even though there's slander and lawsuits and everything else coming his way. And there's got to be something that provides that foundation and fuel for you in your ministry to keep going. Well, Paul here in this text gives Timothy that foundation and fuel, which is actually just the gospel. That the gospel itself is that foundation and fuel. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me. It says in verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is, this is his motivation. All of the toiling and striving, the commands, we don't do those things in order to earn God's favor. We have his favor because he loves us, because of his grace, and therefore we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, we, we do those things that he calls us to do because he already loves us. We already have his favor. Now, I'm coming from a Reformed perspective here on this verse. In verse 10, the Savior of all people, I do believe this is an all without distinction, not all without exception here. He's, some in church history have used this verse to argue for universalism. We know that's not the case because, well, it would be in direct contradiction to so many other passages of Scripture. But, you know, Timothy himself Raised in the Jewish tradition by his mother and his grandmother, as we learn in 2 Timothy. But see, he's not, God is not just a Savior for Jews, but for Gentiles. Not just for rich, but for poor. Not just for male, but for female, slave, free, they're one in Christ Jesus. It's for all. And one day, as we will no doubt, as we gather around that lamb, as he is called, and this Christ who ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, all people. But this is the reason God is mighty to save, and it gives us that fuel and foundation. So here's the first mark of the two marks that I want to give you today. And that first mark is that a faithful servant of Christ Jesus maintains sound doctrine and teaching. Sound doctrine and teaching. Actually, those, that, those words of sound doctrine or teaching they occur eight times in this letter and 15 times in the pastoral epistles. It's a major theme. The word for train, if you look at verse 6, 
It says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. The word for train there in verse 6 is different in the Greek than the word train in verse 7. Different nuances to these two words. The first train in verse 6 has to do with, actually it's used of digesting or intaking of food, consuming food, being nourished by food. But to use a metaphor here, it'd be internalizing. So you're learning things here at Beeson, no doubt, in your churches, but it's more than that. There's an internalizing, and that takes discipline and training. That's his point. He's telling Timothy, be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. I think it is a tragedy today that many churches do not require any kind of training. I remember when I was at Samford University as a student, and I would have friends that would be saved one week, the next week they would sense a call to ministry, and then the following week they're in the pulpit preaching. And I'd go to those pastors and I'd say, should there be some kind of training here? And they said, well, he's called by God, by the Spirit to preach, and who, who am I to say that he shouldn't do it then? I'm like, well, the Spirit's not going to contradict himself from the Word and being called to being trained. You know, even, even the disciples and following Jesus and learning from Jesus and sitting at Jesus' feet for three years. What an amazing opportunity you all have here. A proving ground for theological study. I love community-based theological study. You have that opportunity. And this is something he says that you followed. Being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you followed. That word followed as you Greek students here know in the perfect tense, something that has happened in, with him in the past, but is ongoing. It is permanent in his life. He continues to follow it, even though it's something that's happened in the past. He's continued to follow this training and learning and growing so that he would know his own calling and the conviction that has been brought to him by the Lord, the character, and even in this letter, those qualifications for elder and deacon in chapter 3. Paul tells him to command and teach these things. You can know all the knowledge, you can learn a lot of things, but if you can't articulate them in a clear way that is compelling, if you're not competent in articulating that, it's very little use in the church for the building up of the body of Christ. And so we need to be able to articulate clearly in a compelling way. And that's what he's saying here. And I remember Charles Spurgeon in his uh, little book, Lectures to My Students. And in that uh, book, he says that there's some who have, quote-unquote, stumbled into the pulpit. They, they're not called. They just show up one day and really have no business being there. We should be those that rightly handle, as it says in 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly handle the word of truth. And if you can rightly handle the word of truth, then you can also wrongly handle the word of truth. And it says in verse 13, to devote yourself, until they come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. We're not just imparting knowledge. So in your Sunday schools, in your churches, in your, wherever you are in leading in ministry, maintaining sound doctrine and teaching is not just imparting knowledge, but exhortation. You want the people to be on the move, to have action from what is being said in the Word. There's takeaways the story of a 
young candidate for ministry. He was preaching in his seminary. And after he finished preaching his sermon, he did a wonderful, masterful job of of opening the text and the doctrines in the text. After he did all of that, he closed in prayer. And then there was questions from the the faculty and students. We're not going to do that today, thankfully. But there was a man at the the back of the room, an older gentleman, who had been in ministry for 50 years, retired uh, as a pastor. And he raised his hand and he said, thank you so much for preaching, but I have a question about your sermon. So what? What's the point? As Dr. Smith used to always tell me, give him handles. Give him handles. Give him something to hold on to. Some kind of application. Devote yourself. Public reading of Scripture. We did that today. Devote yourself to exhortation, to teaching. And then he says in verse 16, to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. To keep a close watch on your teaching Here's a question I had for myself at, at my church. Am I neglecting a doctrine or a passage of Scripture simply because I know it's offensive or because it'll be costly for me if I do talk about it? Am I censoring the Scriptures? Am I cherry-picking the Scriptures for a feel-good faith? I was with a guy named Paul Washer not too long ago, and he was reminding me of a, a story that he was speaking at a conference telling the people at this conference to do this very thing, just to preach the word, come what may. Preach the whole counsel of God. And a young minister, pastor, came up to him afterward and said, Brother Washer, if if I do that, if I go back to my church and I preach these difficult doctrines, if I start preaching just from the word and against the the moral evils of this age and all of that, my church is going to kill me. And he said, then die. And it reminded me of what Peter said. We're not going to obey man. We're going to obey God. Come what may, that costs of discipleship. This includes your teaching. It includes your teaching. Not being ashamed of the word. Why do we do this teaching? Not only does it honor God, but we believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. It's a means of grace. God works through the proclamation of his word. And so we want to be faithful to the word. We want to persist and maintain sound doctrine and teaching because we believe God works through that to save and to sanctify his people. That's why we do it. Here's mark number two. Characteristic number two, that a faithful servant of Christ Jesus, faithful pastor even, would pursue and exemplify personal holiness or piety. When I was a student here at Beeson, this was around 2006, seven or so, and I think it was all of the major organizations, religious or SBL and AAR, all these organizations and, and guilds and conferences had a theme of justification. In fact, I think Dr. Thielman spoke at that year, 2007, uh, for maybe SBL conference that year. And there was a, there was a revival over justification that we are declared not guilty and righteous before God because my sin has been imputed or credited to Christ and his righteousness imputed or credited to me. On that, he declares us not guilty or righteous. And there was a great revival of that. Not only did Jesus die for me and he rose for me, but he lived. He fulfilled all righteousness for me. That's a, a wonderful doctrine, wonderful truth, but it was so emphasized to the neglect of sanctification. 
And I think it was just a couple years later, it seemed like there's all these conferences on sanctification. Because we're like realizing, wait a minute, we have to understand what Jesus was telling the woman caught in adultery. Who is to condemn you? No one, sir. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, then, neither do I condemn you. But what? Go leave your life of sin. Sin no more. There should be a growing in piety. That reverence, as Calvin would say, join with the love of God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. That's how he defines pietas or piety. Well, the training that he talks about for godliness in verse 7, again, different word, and this word of training is that physical exercise of training. It does take discipline. If you ever played sports or you're on a sports team, I ran cross country and played soccer, uh, played soccer in the club team here at Samford's uh, one semester, and it took a lot of discipline and training. It took practice and time. Well, this is what he's saying here. There is an effort to be made in growing in holiness or in piety. Think of piety in the best ter- terms of that word. <laughs> I know today if I, if I go up to someone and I say, hey, you're a pious person, it's probably not the, they probably wouldn't take it well. But take it in the best possible sense of that word. But to grow in holiness, to pursue Christ, Jesus would be very clear on this. If there's sin in your life, the temptation to sin, just cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, do whatever it takes, basically, in your life. So you're not going down that road to hell. Growing in holiness, sanctification, availing ourselves to the means by which God is at work. You know, I, a lot of us maybe have gotten duped by the trap, the, the success syndrome, as Kent Hughes says. And you're thinking, you know, all I want to do in ministry is just get more numbers, more people. We call it the three Bs, building, budget, and bodies. Get more people and more money and Look successful in ministry. And Christ says, just be faithful. Be faithful. You plant, you water. I'll give you the growth. Actually, it says that neither he who plants nor waters, 1 Corinthians 3, 7, but only God who gives the growth. That's humbling. We're just clay pots. But he says in the text here, Verse 12, to set the believers an example. Let no one despise you for your youth. This was one of my favorite verses a long time ago. I learned from Dr. Ross here many years ago, the word for despise does not necessarily mean to hate, but to count as worthless. You know, as David is marching across to fight Goliath, and Goliath, it says, he despised, he despised David. Worthless. Who's this? coming across to fight me. Don't let no one despise you for you, but set the believers an example. You set the believers an example in what areas? It says here, speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Verse 15, they should see progress in your life. I love that. Look at verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress I should be growing in holiness, in progress, in love for the Lord. You know, there's things now, you know, there's movies that I used to watch a long time ago. Maybe this is true for you. And, I remember, and, and I'm thinking, oh, I haven't seen that in 15 years. Can't, you know, let's watch this together as a family. Start watching it. I'm like, oh, didn't realize that was in there. Forgot about that. 
uh, watching something with your parents or something. You know, there's, there should be a growing. We don't see that growth in piety or godliness. It's kind of like when you're growing, you maybe mark your, your height on a wall or something. But over time, you look back, and God is at work. He's doing something in my life. There is a progress. We don't want to just be about maintenance Christianity. We're disciples of Jesus, called to grow in Him. And then verse 16, I read this earlier, but verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself. Keep a close watch on yourself. This takes, I believe, community. I've seen so many pastors, church leaders, fall. Now I pray when I have someone that I highly esteem, I pray that they make it to the end. That they die well. We need others. Colin Hansen has his book on blind spots. We have blind spots. We need others. I'm in a group of seven other pastors. We've been together for almost 15 years probably. We text daily. We have a monthly Zoom call. They live all over the country. They're all older than I am. I'm the youngest in the group. They're all wise. Some of them are seminary presidents. They're all authors and stuff. But they they know me, and they help me to keep a close watch on myself. Do you have people in your life that know you and love you? Here's what I see happen. Here's what happens. Someone goes through a very rough suffering or affliction. They get cancer. Something happens. And they're wanting community. They're they're wanting the prayers and the support and love from others, but they've never taken the time to invest in it. They want the benefits of community without the work to invest in it. And it's very hard to maintain that, that pursuit of holiness without others. You need them praying for you. I have people, my friends are praying for me right now. You need people praying for you and encouraging you. Keep a close watch on yourself. Well, let me give you a couple of final just takeaways, handles, if I can honor Dr. Smith today. Handles. Number one is this. If a church leader, a servant, a good servant of Christ Jesus is to lead you in sound doctrine and teaching, then we should be eager to learn and to study and to inquire and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds according to its truth. This also means to prepare ourselves for Sunday morning worship, for Sunday worship, the Lord's Day worship. So often we stumble into worship as a, almost an afterthought. But there should be a preparation, a due preparation. Harry Reader used to always say that Saturday Night Live is Sunday morning dead. And sometimes when you, when you think about that preparation of a family, of your own heart, and praying for the preaching of the Word to receive it with gladness and joy, like the Bereans did. To be humble in learning new things. You're doing that here at Beeson. Sometimes I wish I could just go back to Beeson. There's so many, so many days, I'm like, ah, this would be so great to go and look at my notes on some lecture, to learn it. Number two, application number two here. If a pastor or a church leader or good servant of Christ is to lead you by setting an example as Timothy was to do to the church in Ephesus, then strive to emulate and follow his or her example. Pursue godliness, pursue piety, along with others, as they follow Christ. Don't follow them to sin, but as they follow Christ, 
We shouldn't say, well, he's a professional Christian. I don't need to do that. I was at a small rural church here in Alabama. Walked in, I was preaching, and there was a young man, he's probably 20, 21, sitting to my left as I walked in, reading his Bible. And I introduced myself, and he said, hey, I'm so glad you're here today. I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, as I was talking with him, he said, well, my problem is that everybody is pressuring me to be a pastor. I don't sense a call to being a pastor. I said, why are they doing that? I said, well, because I'm reading my Bible. I come in here as a young man, a 20-year-old, reading my Bible, and I love getting here in the morning early and just reading my Bible in the, in the sanctuary. But because of that, they're saying, well, you must be a pastor then. He's like, I just want to be Christian. I just want to be Christian. Number three, and this is final, encourage your pastor. Encourage. I saw a recent poll that nearly 1,500 pastors are leaving the ministry every month. And 80% of them are highly discouraged and 84% of their wives. Out of 20 pastors who go into ministry, only one will, quote, retire as a pastor. Satan would like nothing more than take out a godly, faithful servant of Christ Jesus. We need others. We need to be thinking about how we can pursue holiness and godliness in our lives. We need to be about sound teaching. But the enemy is after us. But here's the good news, is that our present labors for the building up of the body of Christ, with all of their trials and sufferings, will one day be swallowed up in victory. So we're about to sing this wonderful hymn, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, that soul, he says, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no never, no never forsake. May God grant Beeson and your churches a humble resolve to cling to sound teaching, not having itching ears, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and to cultivate a growing passion for the glory of God with his smile upon you and his sovereign resolve to bring you all the way home. Let's pray together. Oh God, I ask that you would take the truth of your word and plant it deep within our souls that we might bear much fruit for your glory and our great joy in you. God, would you make us those who are equipped and mature and joy-filled disciples of Jesus who are taking his gospel from here in Birmingham to Alabama to the ends of the earth. Father, we long for that day when our Savior will come and make all things new. But until then, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guard and keep us, that we would be faithful to your word, that we pursue holiness growing in Christ with great joy in community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.